0: Welcome to Actonline, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Zhaja, producer. Online trolls and fascist chat groups, controversies over campus lectures, cancel culture versus censorship. The daily hazards and debates surrounding free speech dominate headlines and fuel social media storms. In an era where one tweet can launch or end your career, and where free speech is often invoked as a principle but rarely understood, Learning to maneuver the fast-changing, treacherous landscape of public discourse has never been more urgent. Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America, sits down with Eric Cohn, Acton's Director of Communications, to discuss her new book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org actonline If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act In Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.
1: Suzanne Nossel currently serves as the chief executive officer of PEN America, the leading human rights and free expression organization, and she is author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. She's a leading voice on free expression issues in the United States and globally, writing and being interviewed frequently for national and international media outlets. Her prior career spanned government service and leadership roles in the corporate and nonprofit sectors, including as COO of Human Rights Watch and Executive Director of Amnesty International. Suzanne Nossel, welcome to Act in Line.
2: Thank you so much. Glad to be here.
1: So for people in our audience who aren't familiar with PEN America, can we start just tell us a little bit about PEN America's mission?
2: Sure. We have a mission to both celebrate and defend freedom of expression worldwide. So when it comes to celebrate That involves the elevation and amplification of literature. So we give out this country's most comprehensive program of literary awards. We do literary festivals and public programs. We have a series of programs that are aimed at enabling writing careers for people who would traditionally be locked out of the book and publishing world. So an Emerging Voices Fellowship, a writing workshop for young undocumented immigrants. And we do all sorts of literary and book events in in New York, our headquarters in Los Angeles and DC, where we have offices and also through seven chapter organizations in cities across the country, Miami, Tulsa, Birmingham, Detroit, and elsewhere. And all of that is not just for its own sake, but really in service of our mission to defend freedom of expression worldwide. And I'd say the heart and soul of that historically has been work on behalf of individual writers who pay the highest price for exercising their liberties and find themselves prosecuted, jailed, sometimes tortured or even killed for the crime of voicing their opinions and ideas, telling their stories, so we advocate on their behalf and try to secure their safety and freedom. We get involved in bringing individuals to safety, um, protecting them in, in places where they go to hide uh, and, and find safe harbor. But we also take on a whole range of free expression policy issues, both here in the United States and around the world, including censorship, uh, disinformation, online harassment and the threat that that poses to open discourse on social media, press freedom, and a range of other issues. And you can check it all out on our website at pen like the old-fashioned thing you, you write with using ink, uh, dot org.
1: As you look around the world, uh, you mentioned protecting writers who are persecuted for their freedom of expression. As you look around the world... Are things getting better? Are they getting worse? Is it kind of largely staying the same? And and why do you think uh, why do you think that?
2: They're getting worse, and it's a kind of a couple of uh, converging trends. One is just the trend toward rising authoritarianism globally, with China setting the standard and modeling how a repressive regime can achieve sustained economic growth that has provided a paradigm that other governments around the world are increasingly looking toward and intrigued by the level of social control that they achieve so it's become a kind of alternative model to the western democracy and some of the flaws of western democracies income inequality social unrest uh rise of populism you know, have sort of uh, diminished that model in comparison with the alternative, the authoritarian alternative, and so uh, you know we see consistent annual uh, downward trends in, for example, you know indices that measure freedoms worldwide. So that's one piece of it. A second is the rise of new kinds of technologies and methods of censorship. And surveillance, the mass censorship of social media that China has achieved—you know, something that Bill Clinton joked years ago—you know, trying to uh, censor the internet would be like trying to nail jello to a wall. Well, you know, they've pretty much done it. They have very comprehensive systems that shut down and disincentivize discourse on a widening array of topics in China and that has become a model. We actually did a report we released uh, just last week on the rise of this notion of sort of digital sovereignty where every government is trying to dictate the parameters of the internet within their own society, really undercutting the notion of the World Wide Web as this global interchange and exchange of ideas. So these new methods are also new methods of surveillance involving facial recognition, artificial intelligence. So it's getting easier in some ways. They're new, very potent enablers of government repression of freedom of expression that we see on the rise worldwide. We've also seen an abdication of leadership on the flip side of human rights leadership coming from the United States and the West in recent years that has sort of fueled and enabled some of these negative trends. You know, and just the last thing I would say uh, is that authoritarian governments are increasingly reaching across their borders to target and mes- menace even dissidents who have sought refuge in exile. So we're seeing, you know, the, the, the Roman Protasevich, the Belarusian uh, journalist who was on a flight from uh, Turkey to uh, Lithuania, and, you know, his plane was essentially hijacked by the government of Belarus and forced to land, and uh, he and his girlfriend were put under arrest. That's part of a wider trend of government's not letting go of dissidents who managed to escape their borders and uh, you know, tracking them down, tracing them down wherever they are.
1: I would be remiss if I didn't mention we're recording this conversation on Wednesday, June 23rd. And the Hong Kong publication Apple Daily announced today that tomorrow's Thursday edition of their paper will be the final edition of their paper. They are shutting down. Of course, that is an organization founded by Jimmy Lai, who friends of the Acton Institute will be familiar with Jimmy Lai's story Um What strikes me, something you said in there, is kind of a lack of moral clarity about these things from the West, of being able to speak about what are clearly human rights abuses, what are problems with the stifling of free expression. Why do you think we're lacking that sense of moral clarity? Because it strikes me that what's going on in Hong Kong in particular would be the kind of thing that, I don't want to say, maybe 30 years ago, would have just been an absolutely enormous story that would have really weighed on people in the United States and in the West. And it, to me, doesn't seem to get the attention that it deserves for what is happening to the people of Hong Kong.
2: Well, it's a good question. I mean, we have worked on Hong Kong for some years. We did uh, an initial report uh, back in 2015 called Threatened Harbor." about you know really just exactly this the the rising encroachments on press freedom in Hong Kong and sort of sounding the alarm bell that this was a set of worsening trends and that this historically very free-wheeling place and kind of window into China and you know hub for news coverage throughout Asia was coming under grave threat and you know since then everything we predicted has come to fruition. And it's, it's, it's incredibly poignant because, you know, unlike sort of within the mainland or in a place like Iran, you know, in Hong Kong, people are accustomed to living in what, what felt a lot like a democracy, you know, having freewheeling media, independent media, uh, respected universities with uh, guardrails for academic freedom, know, a very robust legislature that would have, you know, real political debates, you know, actual elections with at least some degree of choice. And all of that is fast disappearing. And I think there, you know, a couple reasons, I mean, to your point about why isn't this eliciting more outcry, I think there is just this sense of China-Beijing government being the immovable object and, you know, the fact that they are the ones imposing this crackdown through their national security law and, and the knowledge that, you know, really no amount of international outcry is going to cause them to bend. And even the Hong Kong democracy movement, the umbrella movement, which was, you know, incredibly powerful and disciplined and inspirational. You know, the the visuals uh, of of people camping out in the streets for months, uh, you know, demanding their freedom were, you know, captivated the world. And, you know, the fact that Beijing managed to withstand that and, you know, has in fact now really made that type of organizing impossible I think has has sort of led to Hong Kong's internal democracy movement really being in a a state of crisis and the rest of the world, you know, throwing up their hands with a sense of futility. Now, I think it's incredibly important to continue to draw attention to this, to speak out against it. Uh, You know, China hates that. They view everything that happens in Hong Kong as a domestic matter. That's nobody else's business. Uh, You know, but that's that's not what they agreed to when they took over Hong Kong from United Kingdom. And, you know, I, I I also asked the question about the business sector, which remains heavily invested in Hong Kong. Uh, some international and American banks are apparently increasing their personnel based in Hong Kong. And, you know, I think it's time for them to take a hard look about whether they really want to sustain hubs for their Asia-related activities in a place where the free flow of information is going to be sharply constricted, where employees are not going to be free to speak their minds. Uh, You know, Hong Kong is becoming a very different environment. I think the business community needs to wake up to that and it has been hesitant to do so.
1: As you say that, I I think one of the key differences Um, we, We hear a lot of conversation now comparing America's relationship or lack of a relationship with China to a new Cold War. And I think the big difference there, as you mentioned, the business community, the idea of a lot of businesses doing anywhere near the amount of business that they do with China, with the Soviet Union would have been unthinkable. Why do you think the business community, especially, is adjust the money opportunity views China so differently. Um, if if we're to believe, and I don't know that I accept the the notion that this is a new cold war. I think there are some market differences, but there clearly is uh, you know a, a, a something between the United States and China. And as you mentioned, the the business community um, is seems to be all right with being involved in a country that is doing the things they're doing, not only to the people of Hong Kong, but to their own citizens. Uh, i curious if you have any thoughts on that.
2: Yeah. Look, I think it's the money. Um, China, you know, is uh, becoming, fast becoming, you know, what will be uh, overtake the U S and become the world's largest economy. It's an enormous consumer market. Uh, you know, it's important for, just about every industry. And so I think there has been a a strong incentive to downplay, uh, you know, make excuses for, and kind of sidestep the moral compromises that are entailed with doing business in China. I mean, not completely, you know, we don't see the major US social media companies uh, and internet companies, Google, Facebook and Twitter are not in China because uh, they've concluded it's not possible to run their services in a way that's consistent with their kind of ar- articulated, ostensible values uh, and and the strictures of Chinese censorship. But that you know they still do. Uh, Facebook is thought to earn as much as a billion dollars a year in ad revenue from Chinese. Companies, so there are still. Google has uh, reportedly been circling around trying to figure out if they can find another way into China. So it's not as if uh, China doesn't have an influence on them, uh, nonetheless. Even though they're not in the market, and then for other industries, we did a whole report at Pan America called. Made in Hollywood, Censored in Beijing, that is about the uh, rising influence of Chinese censorship on the movie industry. And as, as the Chinese film-going market has become the world's, you know, by some measures, the world's largest, particularly for certain categories of films that do really well there, action films, uh, adventure films, Hollywood studios have you know, made changes to plots. They've kind of glorified and reified Chinese characters. Uh, they've avoided any talk of Tibet and Xinjiang. You know, Disney from lawn had a kind of uh, crediting of Xinjiang authorities uh, in the closing credits of the film. Uh, so, you know, there. and if you talk to people in Hollywood about this, as we have, you know, they have kind of constructed a worldview that makes it acceptable. Part of it is the idea that while well, they're not trying to appease Chinese censors, but rather trying to please Chinese consumers. So if Chinese consumers have these sensitivities, you know they really ought to be respected because this is just a matter of satisfying your customer. Or the idea that you know these changes are really modest, and uh, you know it's better to get the film into the market, uh, you know, even if you have to make some compromises. So they sort of have ways of thinking about it that, um, you know, I'd say downplay some of the, the the serious moral dilemmas that are at stake here.
1: China, when it comes to limitations on free expression, is is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Where else around the world are there real meaningful threats to free expression that we're really not paying attention to, at least not in the way that we can come up with ready examples of what's happening in China.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, many places there are new laws that, uh, constrict the internet that insist, for example, that internet companies house both data and personnel in country, uh, and they're called data localization laws. And what that means is that, you know, if Twitter or Facebook is, is uh, operational, which they are in these places like uh, Pakistan or Brazil, if there is a post that the government objects to and, you know, say it's anonymous and they want to find out who's behind that account, if the data is localized, they can you know, reach across and no matter, often no matter what privacy protections you may think you have in a end user agreement with a social media platform, those can be pierced and penetrated and you can be exposed. And that's become kind of a, a, a tactic of choice. Uh, we also see dr- draconian tactics like in, in Nigeria, shutting down Twitter entirely uh, after the platform is used to insult uh, the, the ruling government uh, in India, you know, a democracy ostensibly, there is a long-running campaign to pressure social media companies to remove content uh, that that they say infringes on local law. So it's kind of you know uh, a whack-a-mole popping up everywhere, a recognition that social media can be. Used to rally opposition to foment dissent uh you know to incubate new ideas that may pose a challenge to a ruling government and uh, you know a a effort to clamp down.
1: I mentioned in the intro uh the book that was published in July of twenty twenty dare to speak defending free speech for all uh Suzanne, I've done. Uh, enough of these interviews that I found that the question that authors I seems to have like asked of them, what is your book about?
2: Sure, uh, the book is an effort to explain how we can all live together in our diverse, polarized, digitized, and fractured society without curbing free speech protections. I, you know, we've seen a lot of calls for different forms of censoriousness here. In this country, uh, curbs on speech to protect the vulnerable, to uh, avoid the spread of dangerous ideas, to prevent harassment, and you know those impulses are understandable. And I think uh, you know it, it, uh, it, it's worth understanding, uh, recognizing where they come from. And often, I'd say uh, the impulse is one that is protective, humane, empathic, but they can result in, you know, if we're not careful in a climate of real censoriousness and chilling of speech uh, in our society. And so what I offer in the book are 20 principles for how I think we can square the circle and drive forward a more equal and inclusive society, but one that sustains robust protections for free speech and a, a freewheeling marketplace of ideas. So I have five principles that are directed toward speakers, uh, individuals when you're in the process of expressing your views, five directed toward listeners, five directed toward people when debating free speech issues, and five to consider when uh, contemplating free speech policy questions. And so it's really meant as kind of a manual for how we can Reboot and update free speech so that it can survive into the next century. One of my impetuses for writing the book was a recognition that, uh, particularly among a rising generation of young people sort of who lean left and are deeply interested in social justice causes, that there is a, a skepticism and alienation with free speech and the First Amendment that has set in. And free speech kind of has come to be regarded uh, in some quarters as a smokescreen for hatred, as you know, that which protects those who spew bigotry and as even antagonistic to progress on issues like racial justice and gender justice. And I think that's a very fundamental misapprehension. I think free speech protections are elemental to all social justice struggles. They're really what makes social progress possible uh, and, and uh, agitation and dissent. Historically, it's been the dissidents and those who have challenged authority who have relied most heavily on free speech protections to enable them to do what they do. And so my book is really an effort at a corrective and to introduce to that rising generation how it is that free speech uh, can and uh, is necessary to support the, the causes that they care about.
1: Hey, this is Eric, your host. And I just want to cut in here to tell you that today is your lucky day because we have a limited number of copies of Suzanne's book, Dare to Speak, defending free speech for all that we're giving away to the first 10 people who email us at actonline at acton.org that's actonline at acton.org the book and shipping are all free all you have to do is be one of the first 10 people to email us at actonline at acton.org right now to get your copy now back to the show For those rising generations, where do you think the skepticism or even antipathy towards free expression and the First Amendment are coming from?
2: I think it is derivative of an effort to push forward sort of the the next phase of the racial justice uh, and social justice movement. You know, in, in the 1960s and 70s, we addressed issues like equal pay, equality and desegregation in schools and sort of the, the uh, tangible manifestations of racial and gender injustice in our world. Not that, that those have been eradicated, but uh, you know those formal measures for the most part have already been taken. And what we grapple with is that nonetheless, racism and sexism and other forms of bigotry Remain pervasive. I think that has forced us to take it a level deeper and consider the sociological, psychological dimensions of stereotypes and prejudices that lie very deep within individuals. I think that sort of uh, somewhat unavoidably implicates speech, you know, how people describe one another, uh, you know. to what degree we're respectful of how people want uh, to think of and talk about themselves, you know, whether we're willing to uh, give airspace to ideas that may call into question a, a sort of orthodoxy about how we ought to be driving forward equality. And so I think that is at the root of a lot of these clashes. And, you know, it's a genuinely thorny issue in that, uh, you know, it's true that stereotypes and slurs historically have played a big role in perpetuating racism and sexism. And so there, you know, you can't say that language and speech has no influence, that it can never cause harm. You know, I document in the book that there are, you know, there's evidence that particularly if someone is subject to pervasive slurs and stereotyping throughout their lives that it can cause not just psychological but physiological harm. It can impair academic performance. So that is true. It's also true that those harms can be assumed, they can be projected onto others, they can be uh, speculated about, and they can be exaggerated. And I think that kind of language and discourse of harm has you know in some ways been weaponized to try to shut down speech that people just disagree with
1: how do you effectively combat that so the the more extreme version of that argument would be arguments that essentially equate speech and violence. Um, and you hear lesser versions of that where you had with the op-ed that Tom Cotton, Senator from Arkansas had published in the New York times, um, that it made the workplace unsafe for the people who worked there. Or another example, um, from the uh, writer Kevin Williamson from National Review for the short time he was at the Atlantic, uh, the members of the Atlantic saying that um, he, he just his presence in the workplace would make them feel threatened even though he was to be working remotely from Dallas, Texas and not in an actual office how how can we effectively push back on The idea, well, I I assume by in part recognizing that, you know, some of the things you pointed out about speech is that, you know, speech, you you can say awful things and it can be harmful, but that, as I think we would agree, it's important that people be able to express themselves. How how do we effectively handle those situations?
2: Yeah, look, it's difficult. And I think um, ultimately there needs to be Kind of a long-term recalibration of the place of free speech in our society and in our the education of our children. We've started to do here at PEN America free speech institutes for young people, where we're really explaining to them kind of the grounding under underpinnings of free speech. You know what it uh, is like to live in a society where free speech isn't protected, uh, you know, how to uh, think about and debate some of these dilemmas, what the risks are if you afford to authorities, be that the government or a university administration or the principal of a school, the right to aggressively police speech, you know, it may seem like a good idea in a given instance if they're going to be punishing somebody who uh, is acting like a bully, but Uh, you know, that power can also be turned around and used to suppress speech with which you might agree. And, you know, what we find is when it's explained to young people, they really can understand it and, and, uh, you know, they become enthusiastic. And I think there, there is a real power in the idea of free speech. It's something that has always held an intrinsic appeal to Americans and to people around the world, and I think we it's critically important to try to rekindle that recognition of just the the uh, potency and you know, the expansiveness of free speech and what it makes possible within our society. I also, I also think it's, it's incredibly important for people and particularly people in positions of authority to be willing to step up and defend even controversial speech and not just to capitulate to the loudest uh, voices that uh, you know clamor to shut it down.
1: As we look back historically, um, you think through American political history how often the left would be associated with the idea that you know, the, they would defend that most controversial of speech, the kind of thing that would be despised. Um, and there seems to be a shift and we have many interesting coalitional and, and, and realignments going on in the political world. Um, where do you think that that shift happened with regard to that willingness that was, I think, inherently American to defend even the most controversial speech as something that should happen, and that the best way to combat that was with more speech.
2: You know, I think it's it's happened sort of gradually, and uh, then been accelerated in the last few years. I think one of the you know unfortunate factors at work is the. The kind of uncorking of hate speech in our society. We, you know, for a long time, there were powerful taboos that, you know, effectively prohibited hateful speech and slurs sort of in mainstream discourse. And we had political leaders who were willing, for example, to call out somebody, a pastor in Florida who threatened to burn a Quran to say, okay, he has. The first amendment right to do this but we condemn it because it's clearly intended to uh threaten and intimidate americans of muslim descent and when you had people like the secretary of state or the secretary of defense coming out and saying that uh you know i think then uh, a community in that case the muslim community feel supported. They feel like, all right, even though there's this hateful gesture going on, you know, this does not represent mainstream opinion. People in positions of power are standing by our side. You know, what we then had over uh, four years uh, during the Trump administration was a kind of enabling environment for hateful speech coming from the highest levels of the White House. And, you know, uh, whether it was toward undocumented immigrants or, Muslims or members of racial minorities, kind of this menacing tone, harsh language, you know, making excuses for overt bigotry and violence. And I think what that led to and helped to accelerate was this sort of backlash of censoriousness on the left in a sense that, look, if, if hateful speech is coursing freely throughout society, then you know in the environment we're in, whether that's our campus or the pages of our magazine or newspaper, you know, we have got to ward this off, you know, we are, you know, it's got to stop uh, at the doorstep of the institutions that we control. And I, so I think there's been a real backlash. and I think part of the answer and how we get past that actually is by reestablishing some of these norms uh, and taboos so that people, uh, you know, have, don't have this, Uh, kind of uh, insidious sense that hateful attitudes are, uh, you know, just running freely.
1: The term we haven't mentioned yet, and that I think in a conversation like this, we have to discuss is cancel culture. Um, To you, what is cancel culture? Uh, How did it become, how and why did it become a thing? And what, if anything, can be done about it?
2: Sure. Look, I think the term cancel culture, I'm not a big fan of it. I think it's used very elastically to refer to everything from, you know, on the one side, people who have been convicted of crimes, whose role in cultural life is, uh, you know, kind of red lines. So someone like a Harvey Weinstein or a Bill Cosby, you know, where people may not want to watch their shows or see their films because they've become persona non grata due to criminal acts. That's one side of it. And then, you know, on the on the other end of the spectrum are people who, you know, for a fleeting gesture or a single word face draconian professional and personal consequences in this, you know, very unforgiving ecosystem where even if you had no racist or sexist or otherwise bigoted intent, if you say the wrong thing, you know, you can be permanently banished and pilloried on social media. And look, I believe that there should be consequences for speech, but I think principles of proportionality need to operate. And, you know, it's an ungoverned space. And so there is no one in, oftentimes in a position to assert that principle of proportionality. And, the nature of social media is such that when someone says, and particularly someone who is prominent or in a position of authority, uh, or, you know, or who is controversial for some reason, you know, one misstep can lead to a kind of pile on for all sorts of different motives. And there's very often a failure to interrogate the intent of the statement, you know, what did they actually mean? The context of the statement, you know, where and when and why might they have said this? Uh, You know, so much of our speech is spread around online devoid of any context, uh, devoid of, you know, any personal connection between the speaker and and whoever is reading or absorbing the speech uh, so that it's very hard and difficult to ascertain intent. And there's sort of this impulse to think the worst and, and the most incendiary stuff tends to travel the farthest and fastest uh, through the algorithms of social media. And so that contributes to this harsh environment. The aspect of council culture that I find most objectionable are these situations where you have a mobilization uh, of the public, or it can be sometimes uh, the staff of an institution urging and demanding a punishment for speech, you know, because what that does, I, I sort of touched on this a moment ago, is it it arrogates into the hands of those in a position of authority, extended power to punish speech. And people want them to punish speech because they're furious and something outrageous was said, but they don't realize that what they're doing is reinforcing the prerogative and discretion of those who are already in positions of power to extend that power even further. And what we see historically is on balance when you give authorities the power to police speech, they will use that power in self-serving ways to protect themselves, to suppress dissent, to uh, muzzle narratives that call into question what they're doing and, and why. And so overall, I really believe we're better off limiting that discretion to police speech. And and what worries me about this trend for cancel culture is that it has a propensity to, uh, expand it.
1: As we're about to come to a close here, let me run this thought by you. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what you think, the extent that technology, especially the kind of internet technology, social media, even more so is still very young. So I'm, um, an older millennial, or as I've learned recently on Twitter, uh, a geriatric millennial, and no one really consulted me on that name, but we'll put that aside for now. Uh, what I think sets my micro demographic uh, aside from especially those that are younger than me is that I can still remember growing up without a computer in my home when I was a kid and without having the internet. And what I see or how I view it is that you have um, the way that digital communities are built online. If when you're in a real physical community with people, you know, in your neighborhood or church or community groups, and if you were to say something um, untoward, someone would take you aside and say, hey, that's really not cool. You shouldn't say that. And when people speak now online, you get I think, two different reactions simultaneously. You get one group of people that wants to excommunicate them from polite society forever, and another group of people that doesn't offer any kind of a corrective. They just go, no, you're right and you should keep going with that. And more reasonable voices kind of get drowned out as these two poles seem to solidify. How much do you think uh, the the fact that technology is still relatively new to us and we're learning how to live with it is exacerbating these problems?
2: I think it does. And, you know, I've also thought a bit about this in the context of the pandemic. I mean, I think there is something quite deep in how we're wired as human beings that uh, trust is formed through human contact. You know, that's how you bond with your parents as an infant. And in a world where we have so many interactions that are devoid of that human sensory contact, whether it's on social media or on all the Zooms that we've been doing over the last year and a half, I think something is lost. And I think the, you know, some of the tempering Propensities of a personal relationship—you know, the desire to search for common ground, for agreement. You know, there's a, a very human impulse to uh, achieve a smile in someone else's uh, uh, face, and online, that doesn't really exist. And I think the the whole incentive structure, and you know, what triggers are physiological response is, is different. You want the maximum number of likes and retweets. And often you get that by, you know, not by words of encouragement, by, but by some pithy, uh, unexpected, uh, off the cuff response that has to be delivered, uh, you know, instantaneously, or the, the moment will have passed. And, you know, I document the book, many instances where, You know that can lead people into real hot water and become a flashpoint for controversy. People have spoken too quickly. They've they've uh, rushed to judgment. They have misspoken in haste. And so I think there is a a kind of diminution in our discourse. You know, of course, there are also many great benefits of social media, and I'm on social media. And there's aspects of it that uh, you know I think are incredibly important and actually really foster connection and communication. And so getting that balance right is incredibly difficult. I think we just have to be forthright about both the benefits and the downsides.
1: These problems can seem huge and daunting. What advice or strategies would you offer to individual people for things that they can do to deal with this kind of culture of uh, censorious speech, either, whether that be coming from outside forces or from uh, self-censorship, uh, how would you recommend people in terms of their own communication and speech in their interactions with others? What principles would you give them to operate by?
2: And that is exactly the focus of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All, my book. It actually comes out in paperback in the beginning of July. And I really spell out in depth the principles that I think can enable you to be a force for free speech within our society. Part of it is being conscientious in how you speak, uh, taking into account intent and context when you're evaluating the speech of others, being willing to step out and defend even controversial speech, being thoughtful when you have ideas that you know some people are, are going to find offensive, finding a way to express them thoughtfully, to anticipate the counter arguments uh, so that you can have a reasoned discourse. So I I hope that those 20 principles offer some concrete, actionable guidance. And I I, I think it's a call to action because we need more free speech defenders. Uh, you know This is an elemental freedom that underpins our whole society and democracy. But we, we, you know, one of the premises of the book is that we're sort of accustomed to historically thinking of the free speech as synonymous with the First Amendment. But of course, the kinds of controversies that you and I are talking about today, things like cancel culture, really don't implicate the First Amendment at all. And so the traditional strategy of relying on courts and lawyers to defend free speech for us isn't going to work anymore. It really will will hinge on what we do as citizens. And so I hope the book uh, offers a a primer and a manifesto to to guide how we can become mobilized as a force for free speech uh, within our own society and country.
1: Suzanne Nossel currently serves as the chief executive officer of PEN America, and she is author of the book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us today on Active
0: Line.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, Feedback or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at acton.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Zhaja.